When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Miami Nice, the podcast dedicated to the 2006 Michael Mann film Miami Vice. I am Katie Walsh. I am one half of Miami Nice. My partner in crime is here, Blake Howard, podcast impresario in his podcast cave. He is with us. As always. <laughs> in the cave, <laughs> just rashomoning the stories of Miami Vice and this movie together, as you said, uh, copyright Katie Walls TM. Uh, yeah, I'm just so happy to be back. And we have a great guest. Another we one. We have an am- amazing, great guest. One of my favorite people, a good friend. He is a staff writer at the LA Times. He writes Indie Focus newsletter, the Indie Focus screening series. He is Mark Olson. Mark Olson, welcome to our horny campfire. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a professional. Mark looks so upset at being introduced with punctuated with horny campfire. Mark, bless you. Bless you. Well, I just don't know the polite and uh, I'm always thinking, what's the family friendly way to put this? (laughs) Right. You know, that we would actually print in the LA Times. Like we would print horny campfires. But I'm trying, I just, uh, I've heard some of the episodes, Katie, where it got, it got, it's gotten unfamily friendly and I, I don't know. <laughs> Has it gotten uh, blue? <laughs> a little, exactly. A, a touch blue. But you know, Mark, I think, I feel like Katie and I have even edited the show and had to censor it in some ways and I had quite a bit of fun with that. And I had, we've had some nice, we've had some of our, <laughs> some of our listeners reach out and say, for the love of God, you need to tell me what you censored. I have to know. <laughs> I have to know. And I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe one day. But isn't it more fun to not know and to be in that agonizing? Well, isn't it the, isn't it the Yafet episode? The Yafet. You yeah. know, Johnny Depp's assistant where you guys are like, for legal reasons, <laughs> we're going to leave this part out. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's uh, just to protect the innocent. I don't yeah, know. Protect the guilty. Protect the but, guilty. Protect the innocent. Um, I especially wanted to have you on, Mark, because you did an awesome Q&A with Michael Mann himself Mm. at the Arrow Theater in L.A. um, for Beyond Fest screening of Thief and Collateral. So you talked to the man himself, the Michael Mann himself, and I sent you a little DM and I said, are you a fan of Miami Vice? (laughs) And you were like, of course. So I knew immediately that we had to have you on the pod to talk about that conversation a little bit, but also to just talk about your your journey with Miami Vice and, and Michael Mann and all of those things. So we're very happy to have you here. I mean, I'm such a fan of the both of you and the show, and so I'm, I was happy to get that message. And in fact, Katie, I said to you, I felt guilty, like I didn't want to seem like I was fishing to be on the show. <laughs> no, of course not. But um, you said something interesting. Oh, Katie, go ahead, sorry. Blake. I just there's sort of a secret backstory here. I want to say it to everyone who's listening. When one heat minute, or just before one heat minute had finished, Mark 
was kind enough to reach out and ask me to be on his show and do an interview, which actually was featured in the LA Times. And uh, we got to talk about it. Mark had interviewed Michael Mann before. I'd interviewed him a couple of times over different, you know, over the course of you know your career and different projects that were coming out and different things. And so we had a great conversation. We talked about one hit minute. I just want to say thank you because Mark actually, it's like, look, mom, I'm in the LA Times. Like I could say that after that interview. It was the coolest thing ever. And some of these people who'd watched me toil for two years, like, like in in my podcast, in case, obscurity, in obscurity, <laughs> this weird thing. We're just like. The LA Times just wrote about you, huh? Like, what? What's going on? So, look, Mark, thank you so much. Well, it's such an LA movie, and to see, you know, someone all the way in Australia, like, be so into it and so dedicated, and have done, you know, this heroic effort on its behalf just seemed like we had to take notice. And as I said to you at the time, you know, the offices now of the LA Times are in El Segundo, and literally less than a mile from the still empty field where the climactic chase of heat like finishes. Like I drive by that field all the time, going, going, you know, coming and going from work. So it just seemed like we had to recognize the podcast and, and just also the sort of like heat love that's out in the world. Right. And uh, you also just, I mean, it's just a sign that you have great taste, Mark. This is what we know that you have great taste, but uh, great taste in podcasts. <laughs> and it's interesting because it's like, I do credit Blake with uh, inspiring this sort of fervent love of heat that has like permeated the Twitter sphere. And now I'm crediting us with the Miami, Miami Vice love. <laughs> you poured kerosene on a fire. <laughs> well, also it's, this is, I think, you know, uh, to get back to the campfire, like the you know Blake especially has really been a keeper of the flame for Michael Mann, and it's great that we're in kind of a manaissance. Like there's going to be so much. It's gone from seeming kind of dormant to now we've got the book, Tokyo Vice, and then there was cast just announced for the Ferrari movie it's, as we're having this conversation, and so like things are cooking. Like I, so, it's a great time to like be a man fan and talking about Michael Mann. There so, was so much news this week. It was like too much. I was like, R.I.P. Blake's mentions. <laughs> so the, the best thing is also now I'm, I'm devastated that I haven't been able to get to LA. This stupid pandemic is the one major thing that is like, for, for me personally, there was an LA trip planned that I would have been able to see all of the great people you two included to get over there and things like that. And you're, Great, that great screening series that happened with Michael Mann, amazing. But Mark, your uh, Katie has like shrined your recent series, especially the Q and A's and the interviews you've done with him, with like this this great law that's now building up on the show, which is that, and even even Thomas Grabinski has been on the show. We've talked about it so many times, is that in the middle of these Q and A's, so these two absolute stone cold classics in the Man Oeuvre, Thief and Collateral, in the Q and A's, so many people walking up to the mic and going, "I loved Miami Vice," <laughs> and confusing Michael Mann deeply, like, "What you liked? You what? What's going on? Like, why? What's happening? What's happening?" So, please, can you tell us the first person story of that experience? Because I've been thinking about it. the minute Katie told me, I like occasionally on a day I'm just like daydreaming. I just think about that and I smile. That Michael Mann's like, "What is going on with all you guys? Where were you in 2006 when this movie?" Right. Okay, they were so in like sixth grade. I feel a little bad about this, but. 
So in so I guess the backstory is so this really great genre festival Beyond Fest that happens here in Los Angeles. It's put on, put on in partnership by the American Cinematheque, who Katie, I know you you know moderate Q and A's for them sometimes, and I've done things for them over over the years, and they had this you know event coming every year for Beyond Fest. They do some sort of a retro thing with like a very special guest and it's like i actually have gotten jazzed about it because i was thinking about it for this conversation because of beyond fest i interviewed dario argento because oh. of beyond fest i interviewed david cronenberg oh and God. then i knew that they had the q a coming for man and i was like you know how you are katie you're like i gee i wonder who's going to moderate that right <laughs> and so it a monday afternoon i get a text asking if i want to moderate the Michael Mann Q&A on Wednesday. Oh my God. I would so my, lose my, it. My first thought, of course, is who dropped out? Oh, like, yeah. What happened? You know what I mean? And you're a pro. Sorry, I'm just like, oh man. That sucks that they weren't organized, but you're a pro who asked those questions. <laughs> and they they uh, they claim that they that nobody dropped out. That's what they tell me too. I'm like, I can't who dropped out? They're like, no, you were the first choice. I'm like, mm. <laughs> That's very uh, in the Miami uh, Miami nice parlance. That's very Fujima language, you know. <laughs> there was a Russian guy who died, and you guys got a text two days later yeah. to take up his case. <laughs> so you know, so of course I say yes, and I'm sort of scrambling to get my act together to to get prepped and everything. And one thing I had uncovered, and so it's the it's a double feature. They're going to show Collateral, then they're going to show Thief, and they're going to have the conversation with Man in between. And so it's not going to be like, you know, an hour long epic conversation, but it's going to be like a solid, you know, between movies convo. And one thing I discovered in talking about Collateral was that there was this legend that had sprung up online that Jason Statham in Collateral is actually playing. He appears in the very earliest scene of the movie, hands a bag to Tom Cruise in the airport. And people think that he's playing the character from the Transporter movies. That's what I said like yeah. two episodes ago. Yeah. So yeah. I, and I, you know, realizing that only at Beyond Fest can you get away with asking Michael Mann totally. this question, I asked him, is Jason Statham playing the character from the Transporter? And he said, I hate to debunk the urban myth, but no. Like he Ew. did not, that connection did not exist for him when he you know, uh, was making the movie. Now, I hate to debunk this urban myth that has sprung up, but I listened to the record. I have just a sort of scratch recording of the q and I don't know if there's like a better one anywhere. And nobody asked a question about Miami Vice. Oh. Like, I don't no. know. I don't know where this myth it was on Twitter. Up. There were like multiple tweets where people were like, everyone keeps standing up and asking Michael Mann about Miami Vice. Well, so, were, they, were they doing that thing where they're like, this is more of a statement than a question, but I love Miami Vice. Anyway, about Collateral, was it any of that nonsense? No, no, no. Because we, we only had three <sighs> questions from the audience. Oh. They were something about a specific moment in Collateral. Somebody asked about the keep. And then somebody asked Mann a general question about working with actors. Uh, and the, I think the only time really that Miami Vice came up is when he was talking about Tokyo Vice. Uh, 
Right. Oh. And he prefaced talking about Tokyo Vice by saying it has nothing to do with Miami Vice. <laughs> Damn it. Um, well, I, okay. So I, you know, feel free to edit this part of the podcast out. No, no, I, yeah. I, <laughs> Me I like and Blake are going to your... be like, uh, Mark is saying things that we don't like. <laughs> <laughs> there might be one of those messages, but it won't be debunking because if anything, and, and uh, we were just quickly talking about it in the uh, before we like hit record on, on this podcast, was... The mysteries of Miami Vice, despite being either A, on the front line, or B, on the front line of the forward pass officers, continue to still have holes in, and you would think that people on the front lines, the most cogent people on the front lines, <laughs> would have answers to these uh, mysteries, and and yet, you know, the triangulation of the media and the forward pass officers and hell, Colin Farrell's assistant, we still quite don't know the full story. So yeah, I, I think, we're I think like pulling the is, threads together. Debunking is part of our bag. But I, I will feel- say, you know, it's it, a man has been sort of out in the world a fair amount recently. And so maybe there was like some other Q&As or maybe he had some other appearance, which is where the 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 Miami Vice Q&A mythology is coming from. I am going to be thoroughly scraping Twitter after mm. this conversation. And I feel like I was the victim of a misinformation campaign. <laughs> Perhaps it was Russian bots. Sophistic- we are going to get sophisticated counter intel. Sophisticated yeah. <laughs> counter intel, Katie. Plant it. I was the victim of this uh, sophisticated counter intel, but I will be finding out who tweeted this and contacting them immediately um, because it just delighted me so much to imagine a bunch of people saying Miami Vice is a masterpiece and Michael Mann just being like, what? <laughs> but I mean, I'm sure I mean, he, he was a masterpiece. In a- a great mood. Like I think he knew that it was like a really positive crowd and that they were definitely there, you know, for him, for the movies. He actually sat through most of Collateral, which I was what? a little shocked by. He just he wanted to see it, you know. And he curiously usually you hear filmmakers when they've just watched their movie sort of say that they thought the projection was too dark. They usually want it brighter. He felt the projection was actually too bright. He thought <laughs> it maybe should be a little darker, which pure man. Yeah, uh, he, <laughs> it w- I wouldn't expect nothing less. <laughs> no. He's got to be fastidious even about the projection of his movies. Let's be fair. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so yeah, so he. I mean, he was in a really good mood, and so like, you know, he was very open and sort of expansive and talking about both you know, collateral and, and thief, you know, one thing that to me that was exciting, and I personally had never heard him talk about before was actually the coyotes from collateral. Like Mm. they are written in the script. They were sort of, I don't know, stunt coyotes or whatever you want to say. Like that was not an accident that they captured these coyotes roaming the streets of LA. Like it was a purposeful thing, which I had actually never heard him say in my mind. I'd always wondered like, because everybody talks about the coyotes and like, was that just a thing that happened? Because Blake, when you visit, you may discover you do sometimes just see coyotes wandering around LA. And that was what man wanted to capture. And so it was, a, it was a purposeful thing. It wasn't like a accident or whatever. Um, I wait, and now I'm just like, really like caught up on like stunt coyotes and like yeah. where you get them. And yeah. like... I mean, I suppose you have to have, I mean, wild animals. They're just wild animals. I don't know. I, I just, coyotes are just those things. I'm like, I hear them in the hills at night and I'm just like, oh, the coyotes are out getting someone's dog again. <laughs> um, 
but well, I'm uh, sure just animal trainers wherever you right animal trainers animal yeah. From. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> we've. All, I, 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 I went and grabbed one out of Griffith Park and brought I've, it down. I've. I mean, if we've. I'm not sure about Mark. I know definitely Katie has. In Jackass Forever, there's a grizzly bear. So I think if you can get a grizzly bear, <laughs> right. you can get a coyote. <laughs> For sure. Yes. And that was a stunt in Jackass Forever. Bless that movie. Um, oh, uh, well, I had the experience because I was going to be interviewing Johnny Knoxville. I recently interviewed Johnny Knoxville. I had to watch Jackass Forever alone in a screening room, which is the oh most obviously wrong way to really see wrong. the Jackass yeah. movies. And that one in particular, because it's so um, intimate in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah that is a way to really say it. Like, this is weird. Like, I, seeing it all alone was the strangest thing. In Australia, in Sydney, I think because the movie, um, it's a Paramount movie, obviously Paramount, a much smaller fo- studio footprint than they've ever had before they didn't really have like a media screening uh, for, for anything like that, but it was so kind of awesome that they didn't uh, because I think, you know, all of us collectively, sometimes you go to media screenings and they're quite stuffy um, in certain, you know, for certain kind of films and you're just like, I don't want that vibe. Um, but the opening night session that I saw of Jackass forever in Oz, I'll just like, never forget. I took like four of my friends it was people were screaming at the screen like no <laughs> people were like laughing and keeling over and falling on the ground and crying and dry heaving and it was the best <laughs> screening i've ever been to like it was like there's only two other screenings i would ever put it even close to um is like one and one of them was magic mike double xl in a oh, three and a absolutely half, in a three and a half thousand seat theater it was basically like ladies night and so i reckon there was maybe 60 guys there and then there was like a 3400 women oh, because channing tatum and joe manganiello were there to do a q a as well so they introed the film and then they did a q a and so that is the that was like wild girls afloat like in a movie theater and uh, so both of those screenings are two of my favorite things I've ever seen. You should you probably feared for your life <laughs> no. in that screening. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem was that, and uh, I was like, fearing I for their life. They were going to storm the stage. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Because yes. you're sitting there thinking like, well, I'm no Channing Tatum. Yeah, I'm 100%. no Joe Manganiello. I was doing push-ups in the aisles, Mark. I was just like, how do I? What is going on? You're just throwing water <laughs> bottles in the air. Get away from me. Touch me. <laughs> um, yeah, got a hose. Get out. Get back. <laughs> um, okay, back to Miami Vice. Good digression, though. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Mark, when we were messaging, you had said that you'd only ever seen the director's cut, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Yeah. I th- well, no, that's only kind of recently as far as oh. like on, in its life on home video. Oh, okay, okay. Uh I I should probably say a couple more things about the Q and A before oh, we yeah, yeah, yeah. get into my like life with Miami Vice, which is he said a couple things that I think are like you know of interest. Which was one he said how the the ending of Thief when James Caan's character just sort of goes off that in his, he said like in his mind it's almost as if that character could have wandered off and sort of fallen into the life that the uh, Tom Cruise character would, you know, ultimately live in collateral. And, you know, a question that I asked him was if he sees these connections between his own films when he's making them, or is it something that only kind of comes to him later, like when he's doing press and talking about the films? Because I find a lot of filmmakers 
say that, that they're like, well, I never really thought about it until this part of the process when I'm like sort of talking about the movie. And man almost seemed a little affronted by that. And he was like, well, we better have thought about this stuff. And, you know, we don't just make these movies up as we go along. Like, we've worked on the script. We've really thought about it. Put a lot. Of, so, like, I, it's funny that, like, the level of obsessive detail, obsessive obsession, the, just the level of detail and scrutiny that, like, we give to his movies, like, I, I there's a reason why it's him and his movies yes. that we do it because he's put that kind of just in crazy detail into the movie. Like, he's mm. already overthought it before we get to overthinking it. And I felt like that was really interesting to me was to hear him sort of admit to that in a way. That is so insightful and amazing because yes, it's like, why why can Blake make hundreds of podcasts about Michael Mann? Because the material is there. I mean, we're still talking about Miami Vice yeah. and finding new things to, overturn and details to pick up on and things to talk about and the way people relate to it and like that yes and it's because he puts that in it and and that's so that's awesome i love hearing that and in stark contrast we had someone on twitter say uh actually direct quote me and was like oh just as blake says you know these movies stand up to the scrutiny and one that really needs a deep dive is tenet and i said thank you so much for quoting me <laughs> But I do not endorse this take on Tenet. <laughs> it does God. not stand up to the level of scrutiny that I think Michael Mann films do because, like you said, they're right. boundless. Sometimes, I mean, I, I shudder to imagine with s some of these things, like this project, the Ferrari project that's coming out, um, you know, started as Le Mans 66. It's been percolating in his head for, you know, 20, 30 years. Like, Heat itself percolated for 20 years. He heard the first Charlie Adamson story. Charlie Adamson's partner, a guy named Dennis Farina in the Chicago PD. Like the story was with him for 20 years before the movie came. So the amount of thinking and research and deep dives and, you know, possible interconnections that happen, it's, that's why it stands up because it's someone who's been thinking about it for 20 years for a lot of projects. <laughs> and it's, it's so rare that like, uh, I think other films don't. And when there's happy accidents, which are nice, but yeah, that's what's always insane to me i'd never heard that take about thief that's such a great because you always wonder what's going to happen to frank you just know that he's going to go off and be a ronin you, know, you imagine that kind of thing you know and that's um that's another reason why i love john frankenheimer's ronin because you these characters all appear um especially de niro's character and you're like you never really hear too much about what they did but you're like wow this guy who was like in the cia probably doing gnarly things for his country is now like a free agent and that's a scary prospect it's cool and um, they play really well with what information they're going to eke out or not. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to think about that with Frank. It's so cool. Because that was another thing that I asked Man in this Q&A is that, um, you know, he's known for, like, finding real people to be the counterparts to his characters. And so, like, not to be flip about it, but, like, how do you find a hitman? Or, like, what do you do when you're creating that that Tom Cruise character? And he said that you just kind of reverse engineer from like, you know, the guy that he is and you're like, how did he become this person? You just work back every sort of step of his life until he just recounted 
this, you know, very detailed backstory of like, he'd been in special forces, but it hadn't really gone well. And the reason he like got into special forces is because he'd been, you know, through the foster system and a, you know, a child of the state. And like, so he didn't really have family, didn't really have connections, probably had emotional issues, like came up with this, you know, very detailed version of like how that guy became that guy. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things I love about man's films is that they have that sort of, you know, detail and process his like interest in how things happen but then in the human way it's how people become who they are and i think that that's also another thing that he talked about was that you know in all of these movies even like the most sort of like actiony action movies that he makes like say the collateral or to some extent Miami vice the moody what we all think of as the michael mann like moodiness the sort of taciturn ruminations what he said is because these characters are real people to me like for yeah. him like they don't they aren't just having shootouts all the time like they still have moments in their life when they're reflecting and they're thinking and they're having you know a awkward conversation with someone so that like it's interesting to again like ha- like ha- how real these characters are to him and like that there's something and i think miami vice is a great example of that of and i think again once we get into talking about the movie like what was so confusing about that movie for people when it first came out? Was that it like the moodiness of the characters? Well, yeah. people thought it was going to be a straight up cop. Sh- like they thought it was going to be a TV show. They thought it was going to be right. this pretty straightforward action movie cop show made into a movie. Also, I think the fact that it was coming out at the time that it did when it was this sort of the tail end of this string of, you know, Starsky and Hutch, The Dukes of Hazard, these other like TV shows made into movies. And this was like, you know, Michael Mann being Michael Mann just did not do what people thought he was going to do. And he went in this totally different direction with it. And so it became so much, you know, more real and vivid than just this sort of like fun Miami action movie. Katie brought that up on the show one time and was made that connection. And and ever the Starsky and Hutch. The Starsky and Hutch. It just makes me laugh every day. I'm just like, imagine Universal like, woohoo, Starsky and Hutch. Let's go. And they put it on and they're like, oh God. Well, didn't he, didn't What's man, but, you know, early in his career when he was, he was writing for TV, I, you know, before he'd made Jericho Mile, I, he was in, he might've been involved in Starsky and Hutch or he was involved, I think in Ve- the TV show Vegas. Yeah. Like Vegas. He, he, Vegas, he had a, back- a, there's a, I don't know if it's the pilot, but there's a Vegas episode that's written by Michael Mann famously. And it has a couple of funny Michael Mann lines in it. You can get it on YouTube. I'll make sure it's in the notes of the episode if you want to watch it, because like, there's a couple of like real quintessential man lines. Like he really did it. And it's so funny to see in like this fleeting, like f- fun, you know, happy-go-lucky sort of sitcom, sitcom feeling like show, even though it's uh, probably a little bit more serious for its time. But um, yeah, it was really, yeah, it's it's around that sort of but thing. But that's but also he, what makes, you know, Thief, even Jericho Mile, but then especially Thief, like that does not feel like anybody's first movie. And so, no. you know, right. he, he got to that film, I think already having a lot of experience. And so it just, it's so like fully formed and like so much of what we've seen, you know, in the now you know, 40 years since then is still there in Thief. He wrote four episodes of Starsky and Hutch. He did. Yeah, from 75 to 77. He also wrote on a show called Bronk, 
which I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, the Adventures of Detective Alex Bronkov of the wow. Ocean City, California Police Department, starring Jack Palance. Oh, Jack. <laughs> we got to find these Bronk episodes. All right. I'm Googling Bronk <laughs> while we're doing this. Okay. <laughs> now, now, Mark, let's get to Miami Vice um, and your relationship with it. Um, unless you have any more amazing, thank you for sharing those amazing tidbits from the interview. But I know. Like, we're like, like, just redo the Q&A. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Maybe I feel we'll bad. Unless it's like the American Cinematheque, they might have a proper recording. I have a very poor recording of it that's, you know, just sort of for my purposes that isn't really shareable or whatever. But it, it yeah, it was a, it was, he seemed in a good mood. The crowd received him, you know, very warmly. And so I think it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful evening. I feel like every single person I knew was at that event and I did not get tickets because I was camping the weekend they went on sale and I could not access a computer. I was so mad. Um, but literally, I was like, I can't look at Twitter right now. Like every single, all of my friends are there. I'm so mad. <laughs> and as you know, Katie, then it, it does, it, like, I wasn't totally aware that there were so many people there, but I, like, I was nervous going into it anyway, just at being man and like, what kind of moods he going to be in? How's it going to go? And I think if I had known that so many people that like I knew and stuff were in the crowd, I would probably would have been even more nervous. It's better when you don't know when you go in and you're just like, I'm, I'm just doing it. It's like, we're not even going to think about what's happening right now. So yes, it, it can be very nerve wracking. Um, but yeah, tell us about your origin story with Miami Vice when it came out. What was, were you instantly on board? Like all of that. I mean, when it came out, I was living and working in Los Angeles. At that point, I was a freelancer. I wasn't a staff writer at the LA Times yet. And so I went and saw it at the, you know, pre-release all-media screening, as, as one does, you know, when they have these screenings that are just sort of for general press stooges who feel like they kind of want to see the big movie. And, you know, at that point, I was definitely a man fan. I had done one brief interview with him for collateral sort of prior to that so I was like you know on team man or whatever and but I found it very confusing like the movie really threw me and I in a lot of ways I didn't care for it that much I mean I think you know man's movies especially are you know they're long tail movies like you have to watch them a couple times you have to kind of like figure them out I think Mammy Vice in particular because the movie does not give you any, it does not cut you any slack. It doesn't give you a break. I mean, I think this is, we can talk more about this, you know, right from the way that theatrical opening is, like the movie, part of the mission of the movie is to always destabilize you as a viewer and have you be kind of disoriented and unsure of like where you are and what's happening. And so it takes some deciphering and that like, as just like, a cold watch when you haven't read really the first thing about the movie, it was really overwhelming. And like, to me, it was sort of disconcerting. Like, what is this? And Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, rewatching the movie in a couple different versions recently, like the, I don't really care for the, the finale shootout. Like, I think part of that is it, especially in the theater. I remember at the time it was just so loud. And after a while you were just like, ugh. Yeah. And it seemed like it went on for a super long time. And then 
there's you know there is still some movie after that, but you're sort of so right. overwhelmed by that shootout that you kind of the first time you're watching the movie, it's hard to come back to those couple of dramatic scenes that happen afterwards. That you know, on the one hand, you think that the shootout is the finale of the movie, but really the finale of the movie is those couple scenes that come after. Isabella. And if you can't get in, if you can't grasp that, like you're sort of missing part of the movie. And then also, you know, a personal aside, like as the, the, the In the Air Tonight cover on the end credits of the theatrical version, at the time, you're just like, come on. Like, it just, it just, it felt like a lot of the worst instincts of the movie. I mean, we can all go back and forth about how we feel about like the Audio Slave songs and stuff, you know, but like that one just felt like everything that felt weird and bad about the movie to me was capsulized by having that in the air tonight cover like over the end credits and then now you know and so i've i think we can still say that that cover is uh, not was, working was, for I was, us i was just gonna say both katie and i maybe on the island but like honestly that i mean i don't mind in the air tonight cover going necessarily over the end credits but my big uh personal preference is when they re when they do the director's cut the changing of the score in the final action set piece uh, to the In the Air Tonight cover for that for the shootout was always my least favorite musical choice of the director's cut. I was like, oh no, like the the kind of moody, somber, like great, like traditional score tones that formed under that shootout before were so much more. I don't know. It felt like we were in a morgue like we were just going to watch our favorite people die like the stakes were so high it was crazy it wasn't triumphant and uh the in the air tonight kind of gives you like a yeah and i didn't really want i don't know it just the movie didn't didn't need that yeah moment but, but see i feel like it's funny i feel like the in the director's cut the use of the in the air tonight in the movie like the way they moved it up to yeah. the to sort of like the getting ready part of before the shootout i felt like it really worked and like yeah. i think like oh now it makes sense to me and it does have this kind of building like uplift to getting to the shootout and i think it plays in the shootout and it also i think emphasizes more strongly when you do get that score for the last you know two three scenes when you have um crockett and Isabella, like their couple of scenes there and then the scene at the hospital and then the ending. Like, I think it makes the score in that last little coda a lot more effective coming out of In the Air Tonight as opposed to having score on the shootout and score on the last scenes. Yes. So like, again, like, you know, it's funny that that relatively small change like really helped me like sort of like understand those last few scenes in the movie because yeah because after that first time i saw it i didn't really revisit it for like quite a while and then at some point like while i was you know i think as you know i was my heat obsession was like growing that over the course of the couple different like home video releases like i was like you know i should probably check out miami vice like let's let's try it again you know and also to be honest because i'm such a fan of of Colin Farrell and like Colin's more recent work and and like I've interviewed him a couple of times and he's a great interview and seems like an amazing person and so that would just made me think like okay I'm gonna try Mamie Vice again so then I that's when I what I was saying Katie that's so I got the Blu-ray and you could mm -hmm, really I think mm -hmm. only get the director's cut yeah you can on only get the director's cut on and so that's when I started get you know watching the director's cut and sort of you know 
kind of vibing with the movie a little better, but still like having, you know, reservations with it and stuff. But I feel like that kind of is the movie. Like it's not meant to be a perfect object in the way some of his other movies are. And it's funny, I've actually come, and I hope nobody else has like said this, but I've come to understand it where like Miami Vice is the casino to Heat's Goodfellas, where like Goodfellas is like the one that everybody agrees upon, you know, he, everybody now agrees upon, but then the one for like the real heads and that's like not, <laughs> you know, is still takes like a little bit more effort is like stepping forward to Mamie Vice or stepping forward to Casino. And like you both were like not well received when they came out, but like now you can kind of see like where it's like someone who's just so at the top of their game and like knows exactly what they're doing in every single moment in that movie. And so like, I, I definitely have like come around on Miami. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even though it's still not like my fave man film, but like I definitely like it a lot more. And then, uh, and, and yeah, and now, and so like it's been interesting, like, you know, getting into a little bit like the differences between the director's cut and the, and the theatrical cut, and then the just gift from heaven that is the Miami Nice cut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Oh, Mark, that's so good. That's so good. For, before we get to that lovely compliment you said, I was just thinking about Collateral. And I was like, just imagine, I mean, this is me recutting movies in my head as I was talking, but I'm like, imagine if the first scene of Collateral is Vincent getting in Max's cap. It would just flip people out. Like, what? Like, he's driving along, it's Tom Cruise, it's super weird, or maybe it's just like really quickly a scene where he drops Jada Pinkett Smith off, they have like a nice little exchange, and Max is in the car. I think that would have freaked people out a little bit more if you didn't see, you know, Max getting into his car and you didn't see this little beautiful interstitial of, like, Tom Cruise, like, in 10-second frames, like, you know, swapping a briefcase and sort of prefacing that there's something else going on rather than he's a taxi driver, he's driving someone to work, and then, bang, there's an assassin in his car and we don't even know. I feel like, I feel like that, the unrelenting momentum of the beginning of Miami Vice is still something that's quite disorientating for people because they're like, usually... You know, it breaks the rules of structure of movies like this in that there's at least, you know, five to ten minutes of just something. Get me, Give me a character name. Who is the person I'm meant to be following? Who's the first person I see and therefore the first person I'm following? Um, and I think that Collateral is, you know, way more adherent to those rules and is no less awesome for that fact, rather. I just want to say that out loud, like Collateral totally rips. And you wouldn't want to change it, but I think about that a lot of, like, people just kind of wanting to sit down in the cinema seat and get a few minutes just to warm up before we get into the like uh, insane chaotic momentum and like it just doesn't let them right from the outset when they're sitting down but you've seen miami nice cut now mark you've seen it was it a different experience for you was it a different was it was it, did it take it to a new level did it take it to the limit one more time <laughs> I, I mean it just it is as you know i know you guys have said it's the best of both worlds because i think i agree that 
the opening of the director's cut, the boat race, is like a, a better opening for a movie. But the way that the theatrical cut opens is the best opening for this movie. You know what I mean? Like having that, just like you were saying, just like throwing you in the deep end, like right away. And so the, I think having that, the, just that propulsive feeling of the opening, you know, theatrical opening with the club scene, but then maintaining, I think, especially the couple of Trudy scenes that are the big addition to the director's cut just helps elevate, you know, Tubbs as a character helps you sort of like, get more emotional resonance parallels the two couples better Mm because i think that especially when you watch the director's cut i think you come to realize that the theatrical cut definitely undersold tubs and like kind of did tubs dirty a little bit and so that getting a little bit more of the partnership of crockett and tubs and having it be less like the story of crockett and tubs is there too like i think that is the big addition to the director's cut and so i think you get that from the miami nice cut of like the real emotional resonance that comes through in the director's cut but still getting that just like crazy upsetting disturbing opening from the theatrical version (laughs) Thank well, you for saying that because we just like that's all we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we love that, and um, I we can just use it right now on the twenty fifth of February at seven p.m. Pacific time, ten p.m. Eastern. There will be a special screening of Miami Nice, featuring Katie and I doing an intro and having a chat. There will be links. Uh, that are coming out. So uh, as you guys are listening to this podcast, you're also going to see a bombardment on social. So if you're in Sydney, um, you're going to have a late and an early afternoon, a, a kicker into the afternoon uh, <laughs> on your Saturday, um, very much like a sporting event. Um, so you can w- have a couple of drinks and just kick off your whole evening here, but you can have a late night showing in the East because we know how horny this movie is. We know you'll stay up for it. And in, uh, and in LA, it's Peak 7 p.m. time. So we yeah. are actually going to do a special Miami Nice screening, a one-off Virtual event. screening, so, one-off uh, of the Nice Vice Cut, as they think Mark called it <laughs> The nice, nice Vice Cut, Miami Nice Cut, whatever you want to call it, it is going to be here uh, for one night only. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be giving you guys some links to that coming very soon. So keep an eye out on, uh, on your socials. They'll be everywhere. So I'm sure our guests will want to get involved. And uh, if you want to come along, that would be so awesome. But it's going to be fun to actually see with people instead of just hearing great yes. friends like you, Mark. Go, <laughs> it's good. And we're like, yes, we know it's good. We, can, we really want to, we want to show this to a group of people. But I love your analogy, which no one has said before. Thank you very much about the heat is to Goodfellas as Casino is to Miami Vice. Because I love Casino so much. And I I mean, but obviously Goodfellas is just perfection. But Casino is this kind of like unwieldy, like, you know, not always like, I mean, not that Goodfellas is a feel good movie, but you know, there's like some uncomfortable aspects to Casino and it's not holding your hand so much. And I do think that the, that is a very apt comparison um, with Miami Vice and the way that man just sort of like relentlessly pummels you through this story. It was, I've mentioned this before, I think on the podcast, but I watched this with my parents over Christmas break and they had never seen it before. And they were just like, what the fuck is going on? They loved it. But like, my dad was like, is this the beginning of the movie? Like what's happening? So it's, it's fun to watch it, you know, through them. And then also the, we watched the theatrical cut and like, 
they didn't quite pick up on the Trudy of it all, like when Trudy got kidnapped. So I was like, yes, you do need that threat that sort of threaded through the story um, so that when she is get, does get kidnapped, you're like, oh, I know exactly what's going on here. Sal salutations from your friends in the South is such a cool story. Like in man's whole career, it's these amazing real life, like little nuggets of real life inspiration that come in. And that salutation from your friends in the South scene, I think it's one of my favorite scenes almost in any man movie. It's just the cool, it's like, oh, you think you're good? <laughs> The guy knows where you live. He got you flowers, probably flowers that you like. <laughs> oh, this is a right. set of flowers that you got. And it's like, sweet, check the card. Check the card. <laughs> Valutations from your friends in the South. It's just but like, also oh. that helps like build out the Montoyo character yes. a little bit where, because he, you know, he says in his meeting with Crockett and Tubbs, like whether we work together or not, you will probably never see me again. And the, I like that the movie like holds fast to that promise, like fulfills that. But also we do get a couple more scenes with him, but the movie kind of abandons him a little bit because there's that scene, you know, those, those clips that you see where the, the police are raiding his like, you know, Paraguayan, you know, villa, but you never actually see him again. And I think it's another thing that's difficult to grasp when you are seeing this movie for the first time the villain just sort of like vanishes in smoke. Like you, he doesn't really get a comeuppance or, you know, you, I think especially when you were going to see the Miami Vice movie, like you thought they were going to be slapping the cuffs on somebody at the end of the movie <laughs> and it just doesn't work right. like that. And so I think that's a, the, the way the movie handles Montoya is another way that it's like not a regular movie. And so that I think is another thing that like throws people off. And so having like the friends from the South moment definitely helps to elevate him in the movie and you kind of like understand him a little better for when he just like disappears. I always Absolutely, think, yeah. I, I always think about him and I'm just like, how silly is it that you rate, like you think about in regular cop movies or whatever the case may be, it's like someone raids a house and I'm like, do you think he didn't know about that raid like three days before it even happened? Like he knew about from like multiple agencies the house is empty. He's gone. All their stuff's gone. <laughs> they just leave newspapers right. on the floor. Like it's done. Like he's, he's never getting caught. Like this is a guy right. who, you know, um, we've got no cell phone signal. Yeah. This is the kind of things that the CIA <laughs> use in Baghdad. And you're like, yeah. Oh shit. Like right. what a line that is. <laughs> you're like, this is crazy. And he drives away and then their phones work again, miraculously. And in the nice cut, it, it it's the, it, it adheres to the director's cut of like, he finally then gets Trudy on the phone and it's like, oh my God, like this guy's as serious as it gets. And they're never going to take this guy down. Euro's one thing. The Aryan Brotherhood's another thing, but not, no one's touching Montoya. I was just going to say, I love at the end of that meeting scene, the, just the, the beauty. And I mean, it's, you know, it shows like how amazing the digital photography is in the movie of when the, the SUVs are pulling away and you just see Gong Li and like the window of her SUV like how there's this golden light around her that's just the interior light from the truck and it you know the suv and it just that i just that shot is so beautiful and haunting and like especially when you think of it in retrospect of like that's their romance is still you know that's when they're kind of meeting and whatever their like chemistry is is happening there and so like you think about it of being like crockett's pov of like watching 
this you know woman pull away that he's about to like risk everything for and i just i find that like that shot and that moment like just so transporting yeah i mean i it's funny because i've seen people talk about how they think this movie's ugly and it's not at all yeah. it is i especially rewatching the the Miami nice cut I was like this thing is stunning it's it's beautiful and it and it and it uses the medium in an exactly appropriate way it's not trying to be 35 millimeter but it's talking about digital at this place and time in the way that it works so I think it's a total achievement of cinematography and and the more we talk about it the more I'm like you know, I can't say enough about it, but... Well, I think it's one of those things, though, where you have to try to remember in 2006 how weird this movie looked. And because... And it's funny to think, you know, man, in my impression, like, definitely does not like to talk about himself as sort of an aesthetician. Like, he doesn't like to talk about the aesthetics of his movies too much because he, to him, the important things is that the aesthetics propel character they're part they only come from like what's happening with the characters so like but so just like the fact that sometimes one thing i think about a lot with him is like as his digital aesthetics have evolved like part of it i think is he has this increased subjectivity like he's trying to throw you as the viewer as much in the middle of the action as he as he possibly can and so like his close-ups like over time like get too close like yeah. in black hat especially like whenever there's like an over the shoulder shot it's like it feels like you're like it's like if you're in line with someone and you're standing like a step too close to that person and that's like what his i think to me at least what a lot of his evolving sort it's of like digital kids, aesthetics it's like kids at a canteen in high school uh as a teacher now i i go stand back <laughs> you're not their backpack my man Give them a moment to choose what they're going to eat and walk away. Like, what are you doing? But in a Michael Mann movie, it's that like it's that proxemics, it's that 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 immediacy of the the intimacy. And it, I think that that's like he, you know, it was there were flashes of it even as early as Heat. It's like one of his great scenes of that insane proximity is like when Neil bursts into Wayne Grow's room and it goes yeah, and it's like and, it's, and it goes video and it's like him running through and it's just so close and so you know so overwhelming because you're like really first person it's almost like a video game aesthetic of like you are the first person who is undertaking this thing you are really embodying his his entire essence in this moment um and so you get that incredible thing happening and it, yeah like as you said the, the smaller the camera is the less of an impost that it is on the actors to to continue to fulfill the performance but not have like you know, a giant whirring 65 mil <laughs> lens on their neck when it's just like a very beautiful tight, like, you know, Viper or whatever the case may be that's over their shoulder. Like you can just always seems to work in such a beautiful way in his contemporary stuff. Well, I always think about how in the, uh, the Tashin book, the FX Feeney book, mm. there's this photo from uh, the making of Ali where man is like in the ring and he's it's holding like, what seems like some sort of prototype GoPro or something, yeah. but it has cords. I think it's a film camera and he's like right on top of, you know, Will Smith. And like, he, I mean, I, you know, man wants to be in the ring and he wants to put you as the viewer into the ring, you know, like that photo, like to me, like says so much about where he was and like why he's like wanted to move forward with like these digital aesthetics the way that he has. And I think, Katie, you talk about it with the beauty of the digital photography. 
man was pushing the medium, but not sacrificing the location. So for example, in Collateral, we talked to, to Elliot Koretz about the depth of field that then opens up in the nighttime. And then even as a sound designer, having to address the things you can now see at night, which you could never see before. And then in Miami Vice, it's like going to these amazing locations in Haiti mm -hmm. or offshore in the United States or in these go fast boats or, um, um, you know, Paraguay or, you know, uh, Ciudad del Este, all these things. And the thing that frustrates me so much is that like the use for digital photography for like smaller scale films or lower budget films is just let's shoot this thing in Melbourne and Canberra and it's meant to be Washington and you're like this is so ugly like <laughs> this is so dumb and ugly and how stupid do you think the audience really is that they're going to think that Canberra I mean this is Australia's capital city by the way for international listeners the most boring ugly fucking city <laughs> in the world Right, it was made because there was an argument between Melbourne and Sydney about what was the best city in Australia, and they picked a shithole farm and turned it into a city. That's what happened. It's the ugliest place I never place knew on this. Earth. It's the ugliest place on earth, okay? And so when you see the laziness of sometimes what happens with digital photography, of like, oh, we can composite this, we can do this, we can color correct this so that everything has this, I don't know, textural uniformity. I'm like, that is not ever what Michael Mann has been doing. Ever. Right. In any of his digital photography, he has been about how can this expand my experience of a of a real place, of a you know, and the tweaks are so minor. And even in Black Hat, the photography's outstanding. Whatever you think about the movie, like the places feel so unique and the textures of each of these places feel so incredible. But yeah, I, I feel like one arm of, the, of this is how do I push the medium forward and the other is how do I save money to do a thing right. I think I can do and cheap it, cheap it out? And I think that our eyes as viewers, collectively, whether you're critics or just viewers because of how much content's out there, you can see it in like 10 seconds. You're like, this sucks. Why do I feel like it sucks? And and I think uh, like I've had a, this, I feel like other people have said this, I've said this, like this doesn't feel like a real movie or, or not Miami Vice, obviously, but like Moonfall to me, I was like, is this a real movie? Because it is... <laughs> Everything, everything in the background is digital. So it's like Tolly Berry and Patrick Wilson sort of like on a spaceship, but they're like, but, or, you know, on a, you know, whatever the thing that holds up the spaceship when it's on the ground, the scaffolding, like, you're just like, this is just digital backgrounds. This looks like a fake movie. Like it's, there's no place. There's no texture. There's no sense of weight of anything around us. And so it's like, okay, are we going to use you know, advances in digital filmmaking to like go out into a real place and find what it actually looks like, like Michael Mann does, or are we gonna just like paste in the background, like Tommy Wiseau style in the room? <laughs> so it's so on the commentary for Miami Vice, one of the shots of a, you know, one of the, the airplanes like moving through the clouds, like so beautiful. And on the commentary, Mann specifically says, that's not like a special effect. We shot that plane from another plane. And right. so, it, it, you know, that kind of thing. We're like, and you you feel it. Like, that's an actual plane actually moving through space. And it does just feel differently than if it was, you know, just pixels and zeros and ones. And yeah. We've talked about this guy a few times on the show. But it's the difference between when you watch, like, Armageddon. That, that like Michael Bay demanded to take over NASA for like a week to shoot parts of that movie. Like, like there's spaceships, there's people walking down runways. It's like, and even, even like critically maligned, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. It has a, 
a woman getting hit in the face slow motion by a pigeon to start the movie. And I think that's the best way to start any movie. Six Underground um, is, is <laughs> it's like Six Underground. It, he took that film to places and shot it in these insane ways and had all, you know, applied all of his technique and texture and storytelling gifts to that story. And then some people are like, Red Notice is the most watched movie on Netflix. I'm like, our society is doomed. Okay. <laughs> it's absolutely doomed. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. And, right. and, and like, you know, the rock breaking out of a prison on a, on some Alps of an Eastern European country. It's just Atlanta guys. Like I'm so surprised <laughs> right, I didn't see right, Tyler right, Perry right. walk in the background <laughs> because that would have only made it even more emphatic or that like they never were in the same place. I'm actually, I've got a theory that there's maybe like a mini series in it. Like, were Ryan Reynolds and Dwayne Johnson ever in the same room, except for promo of that movie? And I, I'm going to argue till the day I die that they weren't. I have spared myself from watching Red Notice. Good. So, um, Wait, but Katie, have you watched Six Underground? I've watched the beginning of it. <laughs> so it does count as a view. I did not finish Six Underground. Well, but no, I... Six Underground, it, I mean, if you made it as like a chart... Or like a graph, it would start high and be just a straight line <laughs> down. So yeah. you did it right. But I do, Katie, I know I've heard Michael Bay come up on the podcast before. And I like Michael Bay. No, no. You're talking to the right person here. <laughs> okay, good. I want like the other day, Bad Boys Two, as it often does, was on the television. And that Perfect movie. Is, <laughs> that is the movie I think a lot of people thought they were getting with Miami Vice. That yeah. like, Yes. You know, and so, like, I would be, it would be so interesting to, to really sort of compare and contrast Bad Boys 2 with Miami Vice for how they kind of go about what they do. Now, totally. Throwing this and out into the universe, you guys both work for the American Cinematheque. Surely. Double bill. There's a, surely there's a double bill. And have Bay and Man on the stage talking to each other. Uh, yeah. The, oh, they interview each they other. They interview oh, each other. My God. That because we learned, we learned in the last episode, one of our last episodes with Justin Lieberman, that you know he was talking about robbery homicide division and like pushing past where the, I guess they felt that the Bad Boys Three was going to go. Uh, that sequel at that time that was in development while they were thinking about Collateral, but like they were they were trying to preempt some of those moves and some of those like anticipatory you know anticipatory sort of things that were happening as the story was formulating for Bad Boys Three that probably never a- a- eventuated with Michael Bay, but I feel like those two guys would have a blast talking to each other about. Oh yeah, and I mean I think like Michael Bay is a crazy person, but he's like such a craftsman, a technical person. I don't think he understands humor. <laughs> <laughs> he understands machines and he makes them look good on screen. Well, that's the thing I, that if you actually had the two of them in conversation together, get ready for some fine grained minutia about uh, like lenses or something so, so detailed and specific. Yes, absolutely. And as much as you wanted to, I mean, like, I don't think the Transformers movies are good, but they ha- they feel like real movies and they have weight and texture and sound. Like, I love the way the Transformers sound when they transform, like just all the little like things that make it feel real. Like there's a texture to it, a weight. It's like, I just, I really appreciate that about Michael Bay. I don't think he understands people or like how they talk to each other. <laughs> but well, we have to be grateful because he's just good like, at casting. Just yeah, exactly. Just like 
Just like uh, Michael Caine famously said when they were asking about like the Jaws sequel he did. They're like, oh, have you ever like seen this movie? Do you like this movie? You didn't. He's like, I really like the house it bought me. Um, and, and, and so we just have to be thankful that all the people who work for the Coen brothers, you know, your John DeToros and all those lots of people, they just got to buy some big ass houses from those transformers. <laughs> yeah. We have to be grateful that they had, they did, you know, it was a nice thing, nice thing for them to be they're, a part of. They're still working. Yeah. But Blake, yeah. that reminds me, do you, have you ever listened, you know, the Directors Guild of America, the DGA, yes. they have a podcast series that is in fact directors talking to talking directors. directors. Yeah. I've heard it many times. Oh, I'm, one, of I, my, one of my favorites is the If Bill Street Could Talk chat between Paul Thomas Anderson, um, uh, and, and Barry and yes, yes, nice. together. It's so beautiful because you hear Paul Thomas Anderson gush so hard about Regina King, and this is prior to her winning the Oscar. And I just remember him like effusively gushing about this, and I was just like, you know, at the time I was like, yeah, he's right. Paul Thomas Anderson, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, this the pairings is- <laughs> are always so good on that. Like, yeah. it's I, re- the, I that is one of my favorite things to listen to and also it's i don't know you feel katie but like it's so instructive for like interviewing and like moderating q a's because there's the every time you know a director talking to a director they ask questions and they talk about stuff that like i would never have oh, thought yeah. to ask about yeah and i know a24 did a couple podcasts where it was like robert eggers talking to ari aster and like i just and i think it was the Safties, I don't know who the Safties were talking to, but that was so interesting because they were talking about shooting uncut gems and all the stuff that comes out is so interesting um, about just the production and, um, uh, you know, the, they do ask really good questions and it is it is interesting. I've, I I always get feedback on on things and people will say like, that was really good. I like I like how you did that. Or times when I've had Academy members come up to me and be like, don't ask that question. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I've had, I, I had a, like an 80 year old, like Hollywood starlet actress, like come up to me and be like, don't ask her why she took the job. She needed a job. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, cause you know, usually you want to be like, well, what drew you to this role? And I asked someone that and, and she was like, don't ask her that she needed to work. I was like, okay. And it was for border, the movie where she plays a troll. I'm like, I think I need to ask why she wanted to play a troll that has <laughs> troll sex in the woods. <laughs> anyway, digression. <laughs> I love these because I know that our listeners are hearing what clips I'm putting under it. So that's totally good. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I should, I should listen to that DGA podcast. It sounds really good. And we need to get Michael Bay interviewing Michael Mann or some oh. combination because that would be incredible. I just would, I would love to hear the minutia about lenses and, you know, cranes and cars and all of this kinds of stuff. I would just love it. Especially with ambulance coming out. This is something we can, this is something we can do. There's a really great, you know, the Venn diagram of Zodiac and, and Miami Vice and, and, and bad boys and all those things. They're just, the Venn diagram is just waiting for it to happen right there. So I think, you know, let's let's throw that out in the universe. Let's see what happens with that. Yes. Um, I will inter- I will do a Q&A with Michael Bay for ambulance anytime. <laughs> Mark, I have to say is, you know, as as we're sort of heading um towards the end of this, we've talked about a couple of your highlight scenes. Is there any of your highlight scenes that we haven't gotten to deep dive on a little bit just because I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk to you about any of your favorite scenes in, you know, especially because of your close proximity to having seen how collateral plays in an audience and how thief plays in an audience and then how you've watched it is like, is any scenes uh, in Miami Vice, like, I don't know, like 
come into sharp focus in the wake of those screenings? Obviously, we talked about the connections between Frank and Vincent, but is there anything or any thematic things that you saw? You know, because I, that's what I found at the beginning of, um, you know, uh, sort of towards the end of last year when we we're doing this project and things like that. I kept diving back into other parts of man's genre, um, uh, you know, sorry, whole oeuvre of work, and just like then being able to crystallize different themes and different techniques. And I've been really fascinated with what I'm calling modern man. It's just like post insider, you know, as soon as Lol Bergman's, you know, Pacino walks out of that, uh, walks out of that sort of uh, uh, that rotating door at the building. And it, you know, we're in that state of the flux as, uh, uh, as we walk out of there. Um, I, I feel like, I feel like it's a whole different, it's a whole different, muscle that he's trying to stretch as a storyteller. So is there any of your favorite scenes that you can talk to us? Well, the thing that I was struck by most as I was revisiting the movie before we talked was, as I was saying earlier, those three kind of almost like micro scenes that happen after the shootout at the ending. What is in fact the true ending of the movie when uh, Crockett takes Isabella to the, the sort of this safe house. It's a house that we use, he says. And they have their sort of final moment together. And Colin Farrell, that's where his performance really comes together because he looks like he is just about to disintegrate. Like he really looks like yeah. he's on the brink of tears, but he doesn't know what to do with these feelings. Like he, it's an astonishing moment of screen acting. Then, you know, he and Gong Lee separate. And in some ways, like it suddenly... The moment when Gong Li's on that boat and she's leaving, you're like, oh, this is why man cast her. Like, that she's just, she says so much without saying anything. She has so many emotions going across her face and her, like, has this windswept hair on the boat and just looks incredible. It's such a moving moment. And then it goes back to the hospital where you have Tubbs and Trudy. Trudy miraculously seems to be coming back to to life you know she's she's not gone and you see that in you know Tubbs's face he has this really strong moment with her and then it cuts back to Tubbs or, or I'm sorry it cuts back to Crockett arriving at the hospital walking into the hospital and then cut title card so like the the fact that like it does bring Crockett and Tubbs back together in this kind of romantic way at the end of the movie, but also just as the theatrical cut opens with that, you know, what I think, you know, one of the guests called it like a, 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 oh, torn, a torn edge. edge. Yeah, it, yeah. It, just as the movie opens with that torn edge, it ends with this torn edge where it he's does, going back yeah. into the hospital. But also, you know, a thing I love is that how it begins with one seeming storyline sort of throws that away and then gets yep. you into the real storyline. And I love thinking about how at the end of the movie, he's like walking into like his next adventure. Yep. Like it's, it's something else is going to happen to them, whatever their next meeting is like whatever the next adventure is would be starting with that final, yeah. those final moments. And that, that really knocked me out. And it's similar in some ways to the ending of thief of this kind of, you know, a man alone. And so it really, it's just, there's something about that, that final, those couple of beats and they're, you know, they're tied together by the score. And it just, it really, that, that post shootout part of the movie, for me at least is the part that I think I most had overlooked previously. And it's something I found so moving watching it like this time.
Nurse. Yeah, we've had other guests talk about that sense of of the where it ends just on him walking back and it's like he's in motion and so it 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 ends on this sort of like what's next but it's also this consistent momentum that has like propelled us through this whole film just like never ends um and i love like referring to it as a torn edge like the beginning is a torn edge and yeah i mean it's just like almost like this snapshot, this like moment in time that they've like ripped out of like a larger piece. And then they're just like, and this is the movie, you know, it's not going to end with like the handcuffs being slapped on, like you mentioned before, you know, where you kind of expect that it's like constantly subverting our expectations of what this should be. I love, I, I love speaking of torn edges, like the relationship of Sonny and Isabella, like has it's, has its torn edge too like it's it's that moment where it's such a it's pure like it's the most romantic shit that i can possibly imagine is the love interest the woman that you've invested so much in in this relationship you've invested so much in she's looking at him and it's the, the man's choice of this cut and I mean, it's just like it's like if you didn't know how much the brunt of gong lee's performance was going to smash you um, you you get ready for it in that moment because she like is she's facing away from camera and she turns to the camera looking away from Sunny like sort of in the deep background of the shot mm-hmm. and then we like imagining on a cinema screen and I can still pretty vividly remember it myself of like her giant face on the cinema screen just like give it, like it's his like passion of Joan of Arc the moment like it's one of his favorite films of all time but it's like here's the weight of the entire world in Gong Li's face and like there are so few actors that can like truly not say a word be so emotionally effortlessly complex and she's just there right in the screen and you just have to pour into her face and i i i can't get enough of that that cut like it's it's very it's more the most traditional cut in the whole movie of like cut from farrell cut from her turning in the in the motion of doing it and just having her face in the and rolling on the waves as the boat glides away. It's just like, oh my God, this movie rules. Such a, such a great movie. Yeah. Such a great movie. In conclusion, this movie rules. In conclusion, this movie rules. In conclusion, Mark is great. Uh, thank you for debunking uh, a theory. You're sending Katie down a rabbit hole. Thank you for your amazing support of everything that we've done and uh, all the lovely things that you said. I think some of them are off air, so I'm, I'm, so I don't have to be too embarrassed. But look, thank you. You're just amazing. We love your work, and uh, and uh, you both uh, are at that kind of. Uh, the right way to do Q and A's. You both kind of conduct them in such a great way. Um, some Q and A's in the film industry are so 
infuriating and frustrating and um and uh i just love what you guys do and i i firstly just want to say thank you mark for being a part of the show it's uh it's awesome to have you and uh you know you should know this by now but we'll just say it formally you never have to feel like you're fishing for a guest spot to talk about any movie with us what are you talking about Come on, man. If you want to come out here and talk about collateral for it's, an hour, we'll do it. It's an honor. It's an honor, it's an honor and a privilege. I'm not taking it <laughs> Thanks, Mark. This was so fun. And can't wait to see you IRL next time. Indeed. Thanks to you both. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out OneHeatMinute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.